0: Okay, so this is our Simone Don reading group. We're continuing our reading of Imagination and Invention. Um, we got to the bottom of page twenty-two, I believe, uh, last time. Uh, so we're going to pick up from from there. Um, so we're uh, still reading the introduction, uh, and we're on part B of the introduction. Uh, so we're looking at this. Um, uh, so the section title is the hypothesis of the genetic dynamism of the image phases and levels. So he's giving us these sort of uh, well, he has two sort of nested hierarchies of uh, types of images that are part of this process of development of images or this uh, cycle of images, as he um, describes it. So we've we've gone through the first um, sort of uh, cycle, the first level, um, or I don't know how to, how to differentiate these two um, parts of the of the the account he's developing here, but we have. Um, a, a three-part cycle, which is in turn um, sort of repeated at three stages in a a second three-part cycle. Um, So for the first cycle, um, we have a a set of phases, what you call phases of the genesis of the image. Um, So we have the phase that comes before experience, uh, so the anticipation. So you have an image um, that you sort of uh, imagine of an object before you actually come into contact with that object. and he connects this also with uh, ethological concepts so concepts having to do with animal behavior uh, and he talks about um the so there's this concept of the leerlaufreaktion um, which is a uh, a sort of um empty uh um, respo- empty, empty behavior so animals uh certain animals um that have a characteristic behavior like um catching prey or eating in a certain way or drinking or whatever in a certain way um they, if they have uh, sort of an intense enough motivation, if they're hungry or thirsty or whatever, um, they will perform that behavior even without the actual object that uh, that corresponds to it. So they they will sort of um, act as though they were eating something, even though there's no food there. Uh, and and this sort of empty behavior is what is what Simondon connects with this notion of anticipation. So it's as if the animal is sort of hallucinating the object of the Of the behavior before having actually experienced that object Uh, and then uh, the second phase is the um, uh, the phase of um, perception or um, of interaction with the object um, in in the presence of that object Uh, so here the image um, is connected with the object so we we can think here of um, well just perception in general but there's a sort of uh, feedback uh, process between the image as I experience it and the object. So the there's a kind of uh, constant correction of the image to better depict the object. Um, and uh, um, what else? Uh, yeah, so and then, oh, I, I didn't mention, Yes. Yeah, so he, he describes the first phase as an a priori phase. Um, so again, this is prior to the um, image, no, prior to the object. Uh, and then the second phase is he calls it a presenti, which is a, a term that he sort of invents in, by analogy with the, the terms a priori and a posteriori. Uh, and we also saw this in individuation. He used this term. Uh, and then finally, the third phase is uh, what he calls the um, affective emotional effect or resonance. Um, so here, uh, and this is the a posteriori phase. So we, we can think of memory or uh, reminiscence in, in particular um, here, but he, he specifies that not all memories are images. So um, we can think so it's not just when you sort of remember what you had for breakfast yesterday um, a sort of uh, banal um, not really significant uh, memory that's not an image necessarily Uh, it's when you say remember what your childhood home looked like or um, something that has an emotional or affective resonance for you and and this type of image um, has Uh, A sort of structuring effect on the whole universe of images that you that make up your mental life so you um uh, by recalling these types of um affectively powerful images you sort of uh orient your whole um mental life around these types of images you you like um uh yes and and that's a good example that he he mentions uh in that passage is um a conversation and so not just again not just a You know, uh, when you stopped in the hallway and talked to your neighbor about the weather or something like that, but uh, an important conversation where you maybe made a decision about um, uh, that changed the course of your life, for example, you you might remember it. You don't remember sort of word for word what that conversation was, but you might remember um, you know a few keywords and uh, the tone of voice that you used and the other person used and uh, a sort of affective tone of the whole conversation. That's sort of how you. remember that conversation as opposed to having like a a a transcript of the the actual words used uh and so um yeah that's the third phase of this um process and then he says uh we have uh, these three phases and then we have invention which is a a sort of um uh like a change of gear uh, that pushes the cycle up to a new level so that we have um three phases and then invention is a sort of fourth phase or, or transition to a new um, instance of the cycle at a higher level. So it's a sort of spiraling structure where you have a circle, a cycle type um, structure, but it repeats at higher and higher levels. Uh, and then so then he passes from the, the set of phases, the first um, three-part uh, hierarchy that he describes to uh, a description of the levels, so the, the second three-part hierarchy. Uh, and so we looked at the first two phases or uh, the first two levels, sorry, uh, of that hierarchy last time, and we'll continue with the third one this time. Uh, and so, um, he, it, um, he describes the first level as being biological or vital. So in this, um, at this level, we're, we're dealing with, um, responses of the whole organism. So in the case of anticipation, we have, um, uh, behaviors of the organism, like um, he, he describes aggression or flight, as being sort of char- characteristic of this level. So um, the organism will respond as a whole; it either runs away or um, attacks or or whatever. Um, this is a, a sort of um, biological anticipation or, or anticipation at the biological level. And then perceptual experience. Uh, so the the second phase at at this level uh, is has to do with um, uh, what he describes as innate forms or patterns. Uh, so it's uh, it's a kind of grasping of a situation in terms of these sort of uh, uh, vitally relevant meanings. So you um, perceive something as potential food or potential mate or potential predator or whatever. Um, each sort of instance of perception or each uh, object of perception is understood in terms of its relevance to some sort of uh, Biological behavior, Uh, and then finally the um, the third phase at this level, uh, the resonance phase, has to do with learning. Uh, And here's the the sort of translation issue that I've mentioned before. Um, They they translate um, the word apprentissage as apprenticeship, uh, where so that would be a sort of specialized um, situation. Um, I think. What has in mind is the more general term learning because uh, he's talking about uh, animal behavior here um, and animals in general don't undergo apprenticeship um, so we, we we can describe animals as learning um, and that's what the resonance phase uh, sort of consists in at this level so um, animals will learn that uh, like a, a newborn uh, a goose or a duck or whatever will learn uh, what its mother looks like uh, and you know, they, they have this imprinting process where they um, sort of grasp the the image of their mother as um, the sort of structuring principle that they are directing their behavior around. Um, so that's the first level, the biological level. And then the second level is what he calls the psychological level. Uh, but he, he describes, he says this term is far from satisfactory. Um But what this level has to do with is a kind of response that is less immediate than the biological level. So you can, uh, at the psychological level, it's not the whole organism that either um, runs away or attacks or whatever. It's um, a sort of partial response where you can uh, take in information about the world and um, evaluate things and make decisions and so on. Uh, So the uh, anticipation is uh here at, at this level anticipation has to do with um what he calls motivation and desire um so here you can uh the the individual um and here he's thinking primarily of a human individual you can be aware that you have a, a particular desire that you want to i don't know um Take the last cookie or whatever i'm taking a, a kind of silly example but um you might have a desire to take the last cookie but then decide you know it, it's better not to do that um uh but you, you're still aware of that desire so you're you're you sort of are oriented towards that desire um but you decide not to act on it um and then um the second phase the ex- um, experience phase is um a, a grasp of objects that is not uh directly tied to their relevance for um biological categories of behavior so you're not just perceiving something as a a food uh source or as a mate or whatever you can analyze the object and and you can determine what its properties are you can say this apple has you know a a particular color and shape and so on and not just view the apple as something to be eaten uh and then the third phase the um um affective emotional symbol of the object so here um yeah so this is where he brings up this example of the conversation so um the conversation is uh your your sort of uh recollection of a conversation is a good example of this psychical um image in the third phase so you are um you're not just learning something sort of unconsciously you're not just becoming imprinted by a particular image but you um, Here we can think of episodic memory, uh, which seems to be more or less specific to human beings, although there's some uh, controversy about that. But here, so episodic memory means memory of a particular occasion and not just learning um, a category or behavior. Uh, And so human beings are capable of remembering, you know, you can remember what your, uh, I don't know, sixth birthday party was like or whatever. Um, You you remember a particular occasion. as opposed to just remembering um, uh, like other animals are capable of learning uh, how to respond to a particular situation, what types of behaviors are appropriate. um, But in general, they don't seem to remember particular occasions the way that we do. Uh, And so that here's the, the distinction between that learning at the first level and episodic memory at the second level. So that's about where we ended up, uh, at the second level of the three-level hierarchy. So we'll pick up on the third level of the hierarchy today and uh, continue from there. Uh, So if I can get someone
1: else to read from the bottom of 22, finally, there may also be... I can start us off. Uh, Finally, there may also be a third level of the activity of images that must be called formal, or in a certain sense, reflexive, because they operate systematizations effectuated from the point of view of the subject dominating its relation to the milieu. As anticipation, the a priori image appears under the form of a motor intuition, a projection schema issued from an active center of spontaneity and radiating towards the plurality of situations or objects. Such intuitions, such intuitions are found in the principle of philosophical doctrines like Platonism, Plotinus's doctrine, or that of Bergson's Elan Vital. Through reflexive intuition, the subject identifies with the singular and unconditional source of projection, of procession, or evolution. The subject returns, at the level of ideas, to the absolute origin of present existence and experience and operates a pure anticipation. This same level of formal activity manifests itself in the modality of present experience through an abstract schematization of classification, impelled by an analogical transfer from level to level, as one sees at work, for instance, in the application of the hylomorphic schema. In this case, the monism of a priori intuition is opposed by the permanent duality of two heterogeneous principles taken together. The reciprocal situation of matter and form is comparable to the exogenous input of incident information, coming from the milieu informed by the local activity that confers a unity upon it. Finally, if the implicit logic of a priori images provides the primitive model of intuitive reflexivity while that of interperceptual images is the trigger of an inductive or deductive systematization, the world of a posteriori images seems indeed to be the principle of amplifying reflexivity, capable of ideally reconstructing the genesis of events and their history from a limited number of reference points endowed with a specific valence. It is this type of organization of images as an analogon of the universe that takes place in philosophical systems of a dialectical kind. They presuppose presuppose, as a source of intelligibility and development a complex experience whose origin comes from uh, historical situations Uh, you can continue to the
0: the next paragraph it's just a short one
1: sketch of a link between reflexive modes and the activity of images taken as a non-exhaustive example of the formal level of such activity aims not only at foregrounding the relativity of intuition of discourse or of dialectical thought but also at showing that none of these three systematizations fully coincides with the activity of invention, which is too unstable to serve as a paradigm. At a less elevated level of formalization, the a priori activity of images is deployed in the various kinds of initiation-based thought, while their a posteriori use fuels the structuring of figurations and myths with broad collective meaning. In this sense, the study of the image could be directed towards the analysis of cultural contents. Right. Thanks.
0: Um, yeah. So this. So he he describes this third level as the reflexive level. So he's he's thinking here of um, well, philosophy in particular, but uh, any sort of um, reflection on um, life uh, or the the first two levels. So um, uh, a reflection on um, biological life. Uh, you know, so just sort of the animal behavior of an organism, and then also reflection on psychological life. Um, uh, so this third level sort of, um, so in, in the same way that the, the second level is a kind of, um, holding back of the immediate response, the first level, you just sort of, uh, find yourself acting, you either run away or attack or, or whatever, without having any reflection or, or, um, decision-making the second level, you sort of, um, step out of the situation to some extent, and you have some capacity to, uh you know, observe the properties of objects without having uh, tying them directly to a particular uh, vital response uh, and so on. And then this third level is even more sort of removed from the situation or more um, abstract in that sense. It's, uh, you're now um, capable of reflecting on your own activity uh, and having this sort of image of that activity. Uh, and so the first, the first uh, stage at this level is this image of uh, a kind of outward movement um, uh, a kind of um, sort of central principle out of which everything else is uh, is generated through this kind of outflowing or um, uh, you know we have all these different images and different philosophers we have you know procession um, uh, projection, etc um, but they all sort of uh, convey this same sort of image of something that overflows and pours out and, uh, produces everything else through this overflowing. Uh, and this is the the sort of motor intuition of anticipation um, at this level. So you, you sort of um, depict yourself as being this principle that overflows and passes over to uh, all the sort of subordinate stages of the procession. Uh, and then the second one, uh, the second uh, phase at this level is one where you have Two principles. So we can think of uh, again at the at the second level, you had you have the object uh, and the organism uh, as sort of opposed poles of the uh, experience. Now at the third level, in the, in the domain of reflection, we have again sort of two principles, and we understand everything. Our 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 depiction of reality is one in which we have these two principles that interact with each other to produce entities. Uh, and so here he he's thinking primarily of the hylomorphic schema uh, that we find systematized in Aristotle. Uh, so the the doctrine of um, matter and form. So entities are are composed of a particular form uh, uh, that sort of structures uh, a certain kind of matter. And uh, so this this is a, a sort of um, instance of the second level of, uh, or sorry, the second phase of the third level of this reflective level, uh, and uh He described this as um having to do with inductive and deductive thought, so you um any sort of thought that classifies using concepts uh that are organized into a sort of hierarchy so you you um either it doesn't matter which sort of direction you you either ascend or descend this hierarchy so you you might um observe certain creatures or certain entities that you um See around you, and you you form the concept of a, a tree, um, and you uh, you uh, subsume that concept of tree under a more general concept of plant, and so on. Um, that's one. So that's the inductive um, direction of thought. Or the other way would be the deductive direction, where you you have a concept of a tree, and you would. Um, Sort of apply this concept to some entity that you come across and you say you know because this entity is a tree it has properties x y and z uh, so that's um those two directions of thought are both part of this third phase uh, uh sorry this second phase of the third level um and then finally the third uh phase of the third level uh so the third reflexive um the third moment of the the reflexive level is what he calls the dialectical schema uh so here it has to do with uh taking something that has already uh come about or something that already exists and sort of recreating it in thought uh and so he's here thinking of um hegel's famous line about how the owl of minerva only spreads its wings at dusk uh so hegel um argues or states that philosophy can only ever sort of retroactively understand something that has already occurred. You can't uh, kind of um, sort of anticipate the future using philosophy. You can't sort of predict that, um, you know, certain events will occur because of this philosophical circumstance or whatever. Uh, it's only once reality has uh, uh, reached a certain stage that philosophy can grasp that stage of reality. Um so that's the third phase. And, and then he, he uh, points out that this is a sort of relativization of dialectics. So he, he doesn't take dialectics to be a, a kind of universal logical structure of the world um, in the way that Hegel more or less does, um, depending on how exactly you want to interpret him. Um, but uh, instead, dialectics is uh, one sort of domain or, or is the, the logic or the structure of one domain is, is the structure of this third Phase of the third level. Uh, so dialectics has a sort of limited validity or a limited um, relevance to this one domain, but it's not a universal kind of structure. And uh, again, none of these uh, modes of grasping the world are are universal. So neither the sort of procession, um, anticipation, image that in the first phase, nor the Um, opposition of principles in the second phase, nor this dialectical construction in the third phase, uh, is sufficient in itself to grasp all of reality. Uh, And then he also points out that there's no, um, there's no sort of correspondent to the image here. We don't have, uh, sorry, to invention here. Um, We don't have an image that corresponds to the invention phase uh, or the invention uh, sort of step from one cycle to the next. And he says invention is too heterogeneous to have a, a sort of correspondent here. Uh, so um, invention is, uh, again, something that is, yeah, or, or unstable. It, it doesn't like um, have a, a certain uh, structure that we can um, describe in this very schematic way like the other um, phases do. Uh, yeah, so I think that's sort of the, the main content of this, um, uh, this passage that we just read.
2: Sorry about that. I'm having problems with my mic. I don't know what's going on. So, yeah, I can hear you now. It sounds good. Okay, good. Thanks. So, just going. So, the third level. He talks about being reflexive. It's formal and reflexive. But in my mind, kind of has a rel- relation to the psychological. So they operate systematizations, and I think the word systemat- systematizations is another word for a structure, structural. Often, it structures situated from the point of view of the subject so it's kind of from the point of view of the subject there is a systematization in, in process um, so as, a, as in anticipation the a priori image appears under the form of a motor image so again what this motor sorry a motor intuition the image appears under the form of a motor intuition and what do we understand by motor intuition I'm interested to know
0: yeah. So I think um, the way, the way I would understand here, a motor intuition is a kind of um, uh, image of a movement that you would perform. Uh, so this, uh, and again, this is, this is at a very abstract level as opposed to, so at a, at a less abstract level, you can of course have an image of, um, you can sort of imagine what it's like to ride a bike or to tie your shoes or whatever, some sort of um, motor action. You can sort of, um go through it in your head, um, as we say, you just sort of close your eyes and imagine, uh, and, you know, a lot of athletes actually do this as a sort of practice method. They like visualize, you know, shooting a free throw or, or, uh, doing a tennis serve or whatever. Um, uh, so you you have this sort of motor image of a, a concrete physical action. Um, but we also have, uh, this more abstract sort of motor image or motor intuition of, um, sort of the feeling of, um, Expansiveness uh where um uh you know this is something that maybe uh, certain um certain kinds of music might produce this kind of feeling in you, or um I don't know, reading a, a poem or whatever, some sort of artistic experience, you might have a, a feeling of like sort of expanse a, a sort of image or feeling of expansiveness, as if you were sort of um uh you know coming outside of yourself. You you sort of expand outside of your um, limited uh, Physical body, and you you feel like you feel as if you are um, um, overflowing with energy or vitality or something along those lines. So this is the sort of um, abstract motor image, which is um, behind the the first uh, the first um, phase of this third level. This uh, image of procession, as if the principle of reality was this kind of overflowing entity that produces everything by
2: coming outside of itself in that way so he says this of intuition schema so the schema it kind of has, it relates to something I would say I think that's my understanding of schema issued from an activity it comes from somewhere and it goes towards somewhere it's a center of spontaneity and radiating towards the plurality of situations so have this kind of projection structure what I'm trying to understand is because I think there is a strong structural element to this I'm trying to kind of Understand the under, because I think there is the kind of level of kind of theoretical, there's also a kind of structural element that seems to be underpinning this, and it's just trying to get to an understanding of that. Um, so it's a kind of thing that the center and radiates outwards towards plurality of situations or objects. Such an intuition I found the principle of philosophical doctrines like Platonism, Pl- and Bergson's, El- v- there so is this. He said there is this kind of objective element within philosophy. Through reflexive intuition. Yeah, ident- and he, I think then he goes into that, into more de- and more um, explanation of that. He said, through reflexive intuition, the subject identifies with the singular and unconditional source of projection. I think there is a subject identifies with the singular and unconditioned additional source of projection, procession, or evolution. Um, so we've got pre- projection, procession, evolution, all ideas of of movement i would say it's a movement yeah so here
0: this is again this is the so like in Plotinus, for example you have the one or the good this principle of everything um which uh so in thought so the, the way simondon is describing uh Plotinus's thought here is is that we sort of in thought um put ourselves in the place of this principle of we put ourselves in the place of the one and it's as if we sort of create reality or everything uh other than this principle, by undergoing this kind of movement of expansion. Um, so so that's the sort of image that we have of reality, of the, the genesis of reality, is through um, situating ourselves at this central point, at, at this, um, we, we identify ourselves with this principle of the one, and then we um, sort of expand outside of ourselves or overflow ourselves and, um, um, and produce everything, all the different limited individual beings through this kind of self-expansion or self-overflowing. Uh, so that's that's the kind of um, very abstract um, schematization that that Simondon sees at work in uh, Plato and Plotinus and then also Beck's son. Um, the same. So he, he's So I think maybe the structural element that you were pointing to here is, you know, identifying this same kind of um, abstract motor schema at work in different philosophers uh and um taking it to be um yeah this the same schema is at work in these different philosophers uh even though they might use different images or different arguments to sort of um make this uh schema seem plausible um but they, they all use the sort of this same schema uh or the same schema is sort of behind their thought even if they aren't fully aware of it. I think that
3: this uh, this movement to uh, from the instinctual to kind of um, increasing degrees of remove and reflexivity, I see that as being related to this the idea in individuation volume one that uh, moving from one domain of individuation to another is a matter of slowing down the process of individuation. So, like the physical individuation slows down and crystallization happens. More slowly for the vital individual, and I think something similar maybe is happening in the the distinction between the third phase at the instinctual level and then the third phase at the philosophical level it's maybe can be seen as just a much slower um, slower happening of the same kind of process yeah, I think that's a good observation um again the
0: uh, uh so for those who maybe not haven't read um, individuation uh so yeah, he describes um, and and he's he's used this term, I believe, in in this text as well. The neoteny or neotenization of um, um, of the um, process of individuation. So in crystallization, so in physical individuation, the uh, individuation is a more or less instantaneous process, or at least a very quick process. The the formation, the trans- transformation from uh, the liquid phase to the Crystalline phase happens instantaneously at the border of the crystal, uh, and then once that individuation is done, the crystal is just a sort of dead, inert, uh, inert um, kind of uh, thing that doesn't really do anything uh, on its own. It, it's just uh, it's the result of a process of individuation, but it's not itself active or 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 uh, it, it doesn't undergo any process um, after that individuation. And then it, at the level of vital individuation, in, you instead have um, Uh, the way he describes it is as if it's as if the crystallization process were slowed down uh to the scale of the lifespan of an organism so the the organism uh is constantly undergoing individuation and is constantly in the process of individuating as opposed to just being a, a product that is created and then just sort of subsists in its um in its state uh after that individuation so uh, and then uh, psychical uh, individuation would would be a further sort of slowing down of vital individuation. And we have the same type of um, sort of schema or, or um, same type of argument going on here in this text. So we have uh, the first level is this vital infer- uh, insertion into the situation where the the organism just sort of responds immediately to the situation with a, a particular sort of behavior that is um, Uh, relevant to that situation uh and then the second phase is the or sorry the second level i keep mixing those up the, the second level is the uh psychological level where the organism now has the capacity to not just respond immediately but to uh sort of weigh alternative courses of action and to um determine which response is the the best one uh so you have different uh uh, images that the organism can now um, compare with each other and make a decision. Uh, and so there's there's a sort of um, slowing down of that response to the, uh, to the situation instead of that immediate response. Now we have a sort of deliberate response. And then the third phase is even more removed because it's, it's uh, not connected to any specific situation at all. It's this very abstract um, sort of reflection on activity as such. So we 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 are not just um, deciding what to do in a particular situation, but we're, for example, um, evaluating moral principles in general. So we we're evaluating which principles we want to use in all of our decisions. Uh, so this type of reflexive thought uh, is is even more abstract and even less uh, immediate uh, than the second level. So it's a yeah the, this kind of hierarchy in terms of um, uh, um, sort of how closely tied the activity in question is to uh, to the situation.
2: Uh, well, Mind, um, I just like to get something clear. So, the overall, we talking about images. So I just um, we talk about kind of images that we form, we act, and images we form internally to ourselves. The idea that's been developed here overall. Uh, sorry, you cut out again. Yeah, listen, um, I'm just gonna. I'll I'll stop because it's a bit boring.
0: Oh well, the other the other option is if you want to switch. Uh, I think you're using voice to talk now. If you want to switch to um, what's the other mode? Um, keyboard activated or whatever, where you just hold down a button. Uh, I think that might work better, uh, although it's kind of annoying to hold down a button whenever you want to talk. But uh, if you go into the settings, you should be able to um, switch to the other mode, uh, and that might work a bit better because I think it's the um, volume gate is yeah it's just uh, a threshold that's too low uh, or too high sorry and then it's it's sort of cutting out um, individual words or parts of words uh, so yeah if you, if you can find that in the settings um, then maybe uh, you can just hold down a button and uh, uh, then you, it should the mic shouldn't cut out um, you know every time you go under that threshold. Okay, uh, so maybe while you're um, looking at those the settings, we can go on to the next bit, um, and uh, and then hopefully you can um, get that sorted out. Uh, so let's go on to uh, section C of the introduction, uh, and then uh, yeah, so if someone could read the that first little sentence or a couple sentences, and then the um, uh, subsection one, uh, the whole subsection one.
3: Uh, you want to go from there? Yeah, I can read. C, the fields of application of the notion of genetic cycle of the image, the image exterior to the individual. In nature, we observe that cyclical activities tend to synchronize, that is, to become attuned to recurring phenomena apt to interfere with them. And we observe such synchronizations in the genetic becoming of mental images. Uh, subsection 1, synchronization with the circadian rhythm. The alternation of days and nights modulate human activity in varying degrees, depending on lifestyle, degree of urbanization, etc. To a certain extent, each day takes on the appearance of a complete cycle that carries along a continuous variation in predominance of this or that category of images. The images of evening coming home after the day's intense activity are those of memory. The involuntary evocation of the past may acquire enough relief to evince aberrations out of the images of lost ones. Situations experienced a long time ago or recently recur and take on a new life. The day, and more broadly, life is recapitulated when action ceases and relaxes. As chapters are to images and faces. The past becomes systematized, ordering itself in sets according to an emotive, affective topology qualified by regret or satisfaction. By contrast, the first lights of dawn chase away this crowd of images from the past, After sleep and before activity begins, the anticipations of movement, images that are but projects and triggers of realization, are predominant. It is the time when the individual feels the most pressingly what motivates his actions and that he is the origin of his behavior. Experiencing a sense of freedom in the inchoate inchoate phase of his relationship to objects, the day's perspectives project like rays diverging from a single center, focus, and source. Future action is envisioned in an a priori mode, and the encounter of real objects arises and orders itself within the amplifying expansion of the project. The unity of motor intuition structures the anticipation of the activity. The direct relation to the milieu when one is working corresponds instead to images that are the most directly inserted into perception. Finally, night is the time of a cycle change, wherein changes of structure sometimes occur which represent major or minor inventions that lead to seeing situations under a new light. One, quote-unquote, sleeps on it, as the saying goes, because night reveals solutions that did not appear to belong to the waking world. So it seems pretty obvious what he's doing here is just uh, going through the three uh, phases that he's, he's set up in the previous section um, in relation to the first of a series of of natural cycles uh, i think it's interesting that sleep is associated with invention
0: yeah he so just at the beginning of this so the, the first little um uh stump i guess at the beginning of the the section before the subsection so he says that essentially we have um natural cycles tend to uh synchronize with each other so you can think of um the way that uh, certain plants will open and close their flowers or um or their leaves um Uh, depending on the cycle of the sun or, um, you know, uh, animal migrations happen in accordance with um, the cycle of the seasons and and so on. So you have all these sort of natural cycles that synchronize with each other. And we have the cycle of images that we've looked at in the previous section. And then he says, you know, is this cycle synchronized with um, other natural cycles? And his answer is yes. Um, So we he's going to look at a few different um, natural cycles. But the first one is the cycle between day and night. And, uh, you know, this, this is probably something that, uh, and, and as he says here, it, it, um, depends on the, um, sort of mode of life and especially the, um, degree of urbanization. Uh, so of course in our society, um, where we have, uh, electric illumination, we are less tied to, um, the day night cycle than, um, say medieval Europe, uh, where the the day-night cycle was, of course, extremely important. Um, uh, uh, so I think we even have people that, of course, you know, work the night shift, and and so their active hours are precisely the the night hours, um, and they rely entirely on um, artificial illumination. Um, but I think for those of us who um, who whose life is sort of more or less tied to the day-night cycle, um, I think these. Um, Sort of sketches that, that Simon Dong gives are, are pretty accurate. Um, like at least for me, um, I know, you know, first thing in the morning, uh, or at least once I've had my coffee, um, uh, you know, you always think about, um, you know, what kinds of, you have sort of ideas for all kinds of things you want to do that day. Um, all kinds of possibilities sort of open up to you and, and you feel sort of energized by these uh, potential actions that you might perform. Um, and then when you actually are sort of going about the day's activities, whether it's work or school or, you know, household chores or whatever, you're sort of inserted into a situation, you're interacting with the world, you're, um, you're, uh, you're at this second uh, phase of the cycle, you, you're, um, yeah, you're in contact with objects. Uh, and then in maybe in the evening, uh, especially, but any time where you, you're not sort of directly um, active, you're not directly involved with objects, you um you tend to sort of uh let your mind wander as we say. So you you might um think about something that happened uh last week that you know I should have said this instead of that or or something like that. You you just sort of um uh uh think about situations and, and they might be um recent situations or something from your childhood or it might be something that you're um just imagining as we say, you know, you, you just sort of think of a fantasy situation but you you sort of are are less tied to the situation in in which you find yourself but you you sort of um uh think about um um yeah all kinds of um all kinds of um situations that are not specific to the one where you actually find yourself uh and then yeah the last bit is about um invention happening during sleep um and this is an interesting one this is something that um actually I, I, just a few months ago I read um a text by Henri Poincaré, who was one of the uh, great mathematicians of the early 20th century or late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, he described um, uh, what he, he describes this as being characteristic of his own research process, where he um, sort of has a particular problem that he's working on. And he sort of sits down to attack the problem. And he works through all kinds of different um, situations uh, related to that problem and combinations of uh, techniques and so on. Um, but he can't really, he he feels like he's not making any progress. And then he, um, uh, goes to bed or he, you know, goes to the theater or does something completely unrelated. And then he suddenly, um, on the way home or when he wakes up the next morning, he suddenly feels like, oh, I I know how to solve the problem. And he sits down at the desk and he just sort of writes the, the solution. Um, you know, and, and he says that this is, um, sort of characteristic of his mode of work where he finds that after it's only after you actually sort of systematically work through a project. Um, but then afterwards you have this phase of invention that is sort of unconscious. You, you are not sort of aware of what's going on. You, you might even be completely asleep. Um, but then you wake up and uh, you have the, the solution just sort of appears. You just sort of know what to do. Um, and, and so that's what the type of situation that Simon Don has in mind here where you, you see, you, you work on a problem and you have a sort of limited perspective you you only see you know potential solutions a, b and c um and then you go to sleep and you wake up and then finally you realize oh actually it was d all along that solves the problem um and uh and you never saw d before um and so that's the type of uh, experience that Simonndo has in mind when he's describing sleep as um as having to do with invention maybe the other thing I'll mention here in relation to sleep is um so he earlier described invention or, or he related invention to these uh, sort of metamorphoses um, or these moments of de-differentiation. Uh, so of course, in the life of uh, certain organisms like uh, insects or crustaceans, they they um, undergo these metamorphoses where the, the whole organism is sort of transformed in, in its structure. Um, you think of a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Um, uh, so it it sort of destructures its body and then restructures it into a new structure, uh, and then likewise in our mental life, um, uh, nighttime is a kind of destructuring where we we might have uh, dreams that are sort of disjointed and disconnected and have no uh, particular relevance to the situation where we find ourselves. Um, and then when we wake up, we, our mental life is structured in a different way, and suddenly we know how to solve a problem that we didn't know how to solve the, the day before. Uh, and so uh, this is sort of how Simon sees sleep and um, nighttime as having to do with this moment of destructuring or de-differentiation that brings about a new structure. Oh, yes. Uh, let me... Mm, okay, you should be able to unmute yourself, I think. Uh, you're not server-muted. It says suppressed. Interesting. Okay, let me just try. I'll try server mute and then unserver server mute and see if that does anything. Okay, yeah, it looks like you were able to unmute yourself. Um, would you like to read, uh, let's see, um, yeah, section two uh, or subsection two and then subsection three as well? It's a short one. Uh, if you could read those two subsections, please. Um, I'm not sure if you're speaking, but I can't hear you. Yeah, it says you're unmuted, but I can't hear anything from you. Uh, okay. Yeah, maybe we can try to figure that out for next time uh, and see if if you can uh, do that for next time. Um, I'll read the next uh, section or subsection. Um, Okay. Oh, sorry, I'm looking at the French text. Probably would be better if I read it in English. Um, uh, Let's see, right. Life as a cycle of the genesis of images. If life is compared to a day in which youth would be mourning, it is because the character of unlimited freedom of motor power, the principle of anticipation is common to both. The development of the individual discloses a plurality of powers that constitute so many postulates of the encounter with the object, so many anticipations of life situations imagined according to the contours of desire, at the same time that it shows those powers as successively diverging from a common origin. In the elan of a young being, unlimited will projects the envelope of all possible realities over an entire lifetime. Later, as reality is experienced as limit and obstacle, the sheaf of potentiality, uh, uh, potentially projected actions becomes diffused, reflected, or refracted. The object emerges within an organization whose perspective does not always prolong that of the anticipating project. In the best case of of successful adaptation to maturity, there is partial parallelism between the order of events and the activity of the subject. The subject organizes his relation to reality like a territory where all is not yet constructed, willed, premeditated, done according to plan, but where construction plans take account of the given. The image the subject has of his activity and even of his projects is the reflection of a situation which implies a reference to the real and to a preponderance of cognitive elements. The twilight of life, when the subject partially renounces situated activity, foreground symbol images acquiring, in the form of honors and titles, a social dimension, but also a subject of resonance as well as a magical power of self-consciousness as a means of post-facto communication and re-evocation of the fundamental actions of life, of our life. To go to the end of the analogical hypothesis, we might say that old age corresponds to the possibility of invention and renewal. This is not the case in our societies, yet in antiquity, the prophetic r- role of the older man or woman came in excess of the possession of wisdom, of wisdom as fruit of lo- a long experience. Patriarchs knew how to lead their tribe to the promised land. The ongoing devaluation of the status of the elderly correlates with a weakening of prophetic modes of collective thought and of the official and public use of the divination, replaced by a plurality of practical planning. Subsection 3. Imagination and the Seasons In temperate regions, and even more so in circumpolar ones, collective life has been and continues to be affected by a reaction to the seasons, either according to the rhythm of agricultural labor or the alternation of work and leisure. Most have shown the way in which Inuit life changes when the long polar night brings back collective life with its rites and ceremonies, while summer is the time of isolation and individual activity corresponding to a positive vision of the world. In our mythology, spring is a time of renewal, desire, energy, and projects. Some are that of the realism of work, of action being accomplished at the noon time of the year, when fields are at their fullest. Then with fall, action relaxes, the year gets old, work is totalized in the form of harvest. The year was good or it was bad, but it has been consummated. And so the memory of the dead is evoked. Finally, winter's dormancy brings the expectation of a rebirth, like a night between two days. In the past, the year began with Easter, the morning of the annual cycle. In France, August, 1st is co- uh, August 15th is comparable to noon, midlife in its full maturity. It is the culmination registered in the poetic image, noon, king of summers. The mythology of seasons recoups that of the, li- the ages of life and the hours of the day because all these cycles have more or less deeply synchronized the genesis of images and are seen through the temporary predominance of one of the three phases of the cycle of images. Right, so these are the, the next two cycles, the next two natural cycles um, that Simondon wants to... Uh, correlate with his cycle of images so the the cycle of life uh from youth to adulthood to old age and then finally uh or sorry from uh yeah youth to adulthood to uh old age um and then um, um the next cycle is the uh, cycle of uh the seasons um where we have uh spring as the sort of youth of the year um uh, and then, um, the, uh, summer as the adulthood of the year or the, the center of, uh, of the year, um, and then fall as the, uh, sort of old age or the evening of the year. Um, and I think, yeah, so he's drawing here on a lot of, um, sort of standard poetic images, uh, and, and, uh, he refers to some specific poems, but, um, yeah, there's this sort of identification of these cycles across each other. So we think of youth as the morning of life um, and spring as the youth of the year, and so on. Um, and um, yeah, so these images sort of uh, correlate these cycles with each other, and um, they they kind of uh, identify moments of one cycle with moments of the other cycle. And so Sim- Simon um sees his cycle of images as being connected to this correlation between these cycles that we see in sort of poetic usage and in, in uh, maybe folk songs or or uh, legends and so on. Um, yeah, so these are um, uh, yeah he's drawing essentially on um, standard poetic imagery to make these uh, identifications here.
3: It's interesting that you know the phase corresponding to imagination happens in in some of these. There's a, a corresponding phase in some of these cycles, but not in others. I know he said earlier that imagination was too unstable to serve as a paradigm, um, and I think we kind of talked about this in a previous session. But I I wonder if the idea is that imagination is is contingent. You can you can all seems like you can always find um, phases of these cycles to correspond to the a priori, a presenti, and a posteriori, but they're isn't necessarily a corresponding phase for invention. So the reorganization may or may not happen um, depending on the type of the cycle or, I don't know, maybe on, on other conditions as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. That's a good observation. Um, so if we think of uh, the cycle of seasons, for example, uh, of course, winter always happens. Uh, for those of us who live in uh, temperate parts of the world, um, we always have this cycle from spring summer fall and then winter Uh, but the winter season doesn't necessarily there isn't anything sort of um necessarily inventive about the winter you might spend the winter more or less you know hibernating and then come back in the spring with you know just doing the same thing as you did the previous year um if we're thinking of a sort of agricultural context um you know you do your your sowing in the spring uh the winter you might spend on you know repairs and and other sort of tasks that you didn't have time for in the rest of the year, but you might not invent anything uh, new, or you might not really undergo any transformation over the course of the winter. Um, and so there's a difference here in, with these natural cycles. Um, there's no uh, sort of inherent forward movement or spiraling structure of the cycle um, in the way that there is in in the, the, the cycle of invention that he describes. Um, so yeah, the the cycle just sort of returns to its starting point, um, and it doesn't necessarily uh, change anything or or undergo any transformation. Uh, whereas in the cycle of images, or in the, the the cycle of the genesis of images for Simondon, we have this um, uh, spiraling structure where each uh, iteration of the cycle is at a higher level than the previous one. Uh, but so this would be um, a sort of traditional. Distinction between the domains of nature and the domains of uh, of the human. Um, that the natural world always sort of proceeds in cycles that return to the the starting points, and then the human world has this sort of forward movement to it. Um, so um, I'm not sure if Simone wants to take on board uh, you know all the consequences of that um, distinction, but uh, that's one way we could try to interpret this distinction between uh, the cycle of invention. Uh, or the cycle of the images that, that has this invention phase and um, the natural cycles that seem to return to the same starting point. Uh, okay, so if there's no other um, questions or comments, let's read the last uh, subsection of the introduction, so uh, subsection four. uh someone could read the whole um, subsection for us. I would
1: go again. Uh, four, the cycle of images and the becoming of civilizations. Taking another step toward the collective character of the genesis of images, We may wonder whether the notion of cycle might not allow us to account for the succession of stages manifested in the continuous development of the content of cultures. Expressions such as the dawn of Greek science or the twilight of the idols appear to take for granted that analogical metaphors of day and night, youth and old age, apply to some degree to the historical succession of stages, archaic or primitive, classic then decadent, through which various cultural modalities pass, without any necessary coincidence, moreover, between the evolving modalities, religions, arts, etc. This probably means that the cultural forms subjected to cyclical becoming are those that imply a strong charge of mental images. The pure sciences do have a birth, but they are more progressive, cumulative, as Pascal indicates, when he compares humanity to a single person always learning and never forgetting. By contrast, processes of growth and maturity then decline correspond directly to the common trove of images that constitute cultures and serve as norms for individual knowledge and action. In the succession of primitive, classic, and decadent phases, we find two dominant traits. The first is the predominance in the primitive phase of a priori images oriented towards action, celebrating the act, the feat, and leading to initiatory or esoteric knowledge with elevated values within a logic of participation. Such a culture has aristocratic and sacred dominance like the art of Pindar or Aeschylus or the medieval Chanson de Geste. They concentrate the glory of heroes and inspire high deeds such as the poems of Teredius. Having become classical, a culture finds the images of legend in current and common situations, always present in life as the sense of everyday human relationships. Culture is desacralized and tends towards the deepened Hic et nunc we call the universal. Rather than celebrating great feats or the forces of action, That culture provides the spectacle of action as it unfolds. And it is realist because its modality is the fully actualized present. Finally, the post-classical period seeks intense and poignant emotive affective images. Art is no longer a spectacle but a substitute for reality in the form of symbols as pseudo-objects. Cultural forms are decoupled from real life like a double that masks it. Aesthetic values become dominant and constitute a complete universe, a subjective achievement. It is the era of the novel, romanticism, The imaginary is a second reality according to a logic of identification. In other words, archaic cultures are centered on action in a perspective of projection into the future. Classical cultures mold perceptions and are essentially plastic, builders of a real object, while cultures in decline, rather than inciting action or shaping perceptions of an ordered and arranged but not doubled reality, produce a universe of images that dress and mask the world without adhering to it. Anesthetics is thereby created. That is not a way of perceiving but a manner of experiencing images brought about by art or even a way of considering the world as a reservoir of images everything in the world that triggers a fissure ruin historical look allure historique allows an escape from perception in order to enter into an emotive affective universe symbols acquire meaning within the perspective of an imaginary past life aesthetic art in contrast to the plastic arts consigns what it produces to the past. It creates ruins. It is this image-producing art which Plato chased from the polis. Action, perception, and symbolic memories are thus the three fundamental modalities of the content of images that constitute the basis of cultures, and therefore differ from the sciences. Since the third stage is not that of positivity, which Auguste Comte discovered in The Law of the Three Stages, knowledge is progressive and continuous, whereas cultures, after each cycle, break apart, change structure and re-emerge according to new principles
0: yeah this this bit is um again another cycle not a, a natural cycle this time but um, um this cycle of civilizations this is a, a very again traditional image uh, we talk about the dawn of civilization or you know the um uh, this sort of progression of phases between um uh, a sort of archaic and then classical and then uh post- classical phase or, or people talk about you know the golden age of greek literature or russian literature or whatever um and then a, a sort of um decline or, or maybe a silver age which is not quite at the same level as the the golden age and so on um so we we have these um uh images that we use in relation to the development of of the arts especially but um uh you know civilizations in in sort of the broad sense of the term um and Don't uh, suggests that this sort of cyclical nature or this cyclical um, structure is something that we find, especially in relation to images. Uh, um, uh, in in insofar as a particular domain of life is, you know, structured in this imagistic way, it's going to be more uh, susceptible to development in terms of these uh, cycles of the images. Uh, and so, the arts in particular are. Uh, of course, um, uh, productive of images in various ways, uh, and so it's it's for that reason that the arts sort of undergo this cyclical um, development from an archaic to a, a classical to a post-classical phase, um, and uh, and again, this this sort of cycle is tied or correlated to the other cycles where we talk about um, the youth of a. Uh, of a civilization or the youth of a, a particular art movement. Um, uh, and then we tie that to uh, the dawn uh, of a, of Greek art or whatever. Um, and then we compare, um, uh, we talk about the maturity of, um, of a particular art tradition um, again. So this is comparing it to the life cycle of a, of a human being. Um, so we, we make all these correlations between all these different cycles um, and uh uh, so yeah, that's that's sort of the the type of cycle that Simon Don has in mind here, and again, he's drawing on um, sort of traditional images of of the the cycle of civilizations or the cycle of um, phases in uh, the development of a, an art form. Yeah, I
3: wonder if this there was that um, I posted in the chat that that obscure reference to aestheticism in individuation, Volume One, mm-hmm. um, and I wonder if he had something like this in mind. Uh, the characterization of the a posteriori um, phase of civilization, I guess where there's the uh, aesthetic relationship to civilization is just sort of a um, a decoration uh, and it's purely oriented towards the past. it doesn't have the projective and sort of futural um, orientation of. Uh, the heroic poetry uh, that he associates with the um, the earliest phase of civilization. So, you know, maybe what's what is uh, wrong with aestheticism in this section, volume one, is that it's purely past-oriented and it it is only iterative because it can't sort of orient itself towards the new.
0: Yeah, thanks for bringing that passage up, um, because yes, I think this text does definitely help to um, clarify what, he, what he's talking about in Individuation, where he yeah, he just sort of makes, and this is in the conclusion, I believe, of Individuation, um, where he he just sort of makes this allusion to aestheticism, and then he, he hasn't really talked about anything like aestheticism throughout the rest of the text, and he, he just sort of alludes to aestheticism in the conclusion and and he sort of expects us to um you know know what he's talking about um whereas of course we don't really know what he's talking about um but uh yeah so here um again we can think of this uh cycle um as having to do with the extent to which the phases are inserted into a situation um so in the archaic phase uh so he's thinking here of like um uh, Homer uh, Pindar uh, you know the he's I think he's drawing this especially from um, uh the history of of Greek uh art and literature but yeah so people like Homer or Pindar um, they are expressing these sort of um, noble deeds that um, are are sort of calls for other people to imitate these deeds and to perform new noble deeds uh so you, you don't read the Iliad or listen to the Iliad recited Um you know, to have an aesthetic experience, but you, you listen to it, um, or you, uh, you know, the practice of reciting the Iliad is meant to instill a love for honor and glory and so on in the youth, um, and to, uh, elicit noble deeds from the youth in, in future. So there's a whole practice of, uh, the sort of, uh, reception of this form of art that has to do with, uh, inciting to action. Uh, and then, the second phase, the classical phase, we can think of um people like um uh Sophocles maybe is, is, is he might have in mind, or you know people that uh have this sort of direct um encounter with the world so they they understand th- they're they're using these sort of legendary sources um like there were uh you know the um uh the legendary sources for Oedipus and so on that uh that Sophocles is using um that uh but they're they're understood in relation to contemporary life um they're they're sort of transposed into the the contemporary world uh of you know third or fourth century athens um so you only ever um so the use of the of these images now has to do with a sort of uh interaction with the world and an understanding of the reality that that the people are living in uh and then the third phase. I'm not sure if there's a sort of direct equivalent in in the Greek literary um, in the history of Greek literature or Greek art, but this third phase, this aesthetic phase, um, and he, he uses here the term uh, romanticism um, as a, a sort of synonym for this. But it's it's uh, a kind of understanding of art as being productive of, of experiences. So it's not that art um, sort of creates uh, or or modulates reality or or creates something. Uh, in the world it's the art um, serves to create experiences and this is yeah especially a a romantic uh, if we look at you know uh, passing over a few thousand years but we look at um, the uh, romanticism properly speaking at the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century um, this conception was uh, was sort of um, predominant in the self-understanding of a lot of the authors that we now think of as romantics that art serves to produce an emotional response, and that's that's primarily the purpose of art is to produce that emotional response in the audience. And uh, Simon Donald alludes here to this practice of constructing ruins, which is kind of uh, he, th- he I think he sees it as kind of silly or kind of um, artificial, but um, this was something that um, you know eighteenth and nineteenth century gentlemen would have like fake Roman ruins constructed on their, um, country properties, uh, you know, and, and it, you know, looking at this ruin in your nice little garden, um, you know, produces an experience of sort of, um, nostalgia for the past or whatever. Um, uh, but anyway, this, this artistic construction of the ruin has, serves only to produce a certain, um, a certain, uh, uh, emotion in the viewer uh it's it doesn't have uh, a capacity to elicit action in the same way that um the Iliad does uh and so um i think simon don in this text in imagination and invention he doesn't really seem to give any value judgment to these different um phases uh or not not a direct value judgment um but he um he in uh, individu- uh, Individuation, he definitely criticizes aestheticism or he sees it as um, a kind of uh, decadence, I guess, where, um, yeah, we have this sort of removal from reality and we only think of art and the production of art as having to do with generating experiences or uh, eliciting emotions in the audience. And uh, I think Simondon sees this as a, a kind of degeneration of art or as something that um sort of limits the the capacity of art um to uh to have an effect on human life uh whereas um you know there are other aspects of art like the capacity to elicit action uh that are not grasped by this um sort of formulation of uh romanticism or aestheticism
3: yeah I th- and i think that example of the like the ruins and the you know, in the garden is uh, also a great way to think about the difference between iteration and repetition, which he uh, brings up in the conclusion to volume one. And I, I think he associates it with aestheticism, um, if I remember correctly, the idea of the wild act as something that is only iterable but not repeatable. Um, and I think that repetition involves some kind of creative transformation. But, uh, you know, if you're just reconstructing what the ruins of something look like in your garden you're i think very far from from repeating the i don't know the original impetus of the creation of that thing
0: yeah i think that's right uh i i'd have to go back to that conclusion passage because it is quite dense and uh yeah i think it uh it makes a lot more sense having read this passage in imagination and invention to go back to that passage and try to make sense of it um but uh, yeah, so like the act of repeating, uh, you know, the Romans didn't build ruins; they built, you know, bridges and coliseums and so on. Um, um, and uh, so, if you're act of sort of, re- if you wanted to sort of do what the Romans did, you would build a new bridge. Um, you wouldn't like build a ruin of a bridge that sort of looks like a Roman bridge or something like that. You would um, you would actually construct something new. Uh, because that's what the Romans did in their time. They constructed something new. So, um, yeah, I think that um, helps to make sense of that distinction um, between, um, yeah, iteration and repetition. Um, So iteration would just be um, sort of uh, re-evoking the past uh, or, you know, producing an experience of pastness or something like that, as opposed to repetition, which is um, performing a new act that sort of, takes up the content of the old act, um, you know, building a new bridge, uh, you know, the same way that the Romans did in their time. Oh, and one bit of translation that, uh, or one thing doesn't come across quite as well in the translation is that, um, so he says here, he says that the, um, aesthetic phase, this third phase is the era of the novel romanticism. Um, so in French, uh, a novel is a, a roman. So, and, and then romanticism is romanticisme. So, um, there's a direct etymological connection between uh, uh, the the word for novel and the word for romanticism. Um, so uh, yeah, the the connection might, might be clearer in French than in English. But um, yeah, the the sort of popularization of novel writing and reading uh, largely, or to some extent at least, coincides with um, romanticism in in Europe, uh, where um, novels. Um, so this is like late 18th to early 19th century where novels um, have this role of um uh eliciting experiences in the reader um, you're supposed to be sort of moved to to tears or to laughter or whatever when you read a novel um and this is um um sort of uh yeah what a, a novel is supposed to be for is to produce these experiences in the reader uh, and and so this uh moment of the this era of the novel is uh is yeah precisely the era of romanticism okay um i had said that we should do uh, a shorter session today um we went a little bit longer than i expected but i think this is a good place to um stop because we're right at the um end of the introduction and then we can go on to part one next time uh if that's okay with everyone okay great um so thanks everyone for coming out thanks for um your contributions uh and um Hopefully we can get some of these uh, mic issues sorted out for next time and then
1: everyone can uh, participate fully. All right. So uh, see you all next week.